0: Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel good films with your fan favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Take Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at tribecafilm.com.
1: If we were to see a really large increase in government spending, and it wasn't accompanied by taxes, That would put upward pressure on the economy and you'd see the Fed raising interest rates. And in fact, they'd raise it quite a lot
2: Hello, welcome to the client Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is a conversation I've wanted to have for I don't know a year. I, I literally got the idea for this, um, I think, like a year ago, and it's just taken me some time to get to get it together to figure out how to do it. I have been for a long time interested in and often confused by this idea of modern monetary theory, which is an alternative way of looking at how to think about budget deficits and inflation and the government's ability and constraints on printing money. But because, as I said, it's not always an idea I understand all that well, um, I've wanted to try to get at a better way of tracing its boundaries. Um, and so I wanted to have a, a debate between, not a debate, I guess a conversation between somebody who's a proponent of modern monetary theory and someone who comes. Out a more mainstream, if liberal, branch of of traditional economics. And so I'm very glad that Jason Furman, uh, President Obama's former chief economist, and Stephanie Kelton, who is an economist at Stony Brook University and is, I think, one of the, the most public advocates of modern monetary theory, have both agreed to join me, me here. So on the one hand, I, I, this is a, an idea that often gets caricatured in the debate as saying, particularly like on Twitter and, and elsewhere, as saying you don't have to pay for anything. You just print whatever you want. Um, but on the other hand, if it's not that, well, what is it, right? What, what, How would it recommend a different path forward for government budgets, for fiscal policy, for the Fed, for the country than more traditional economics? So this is a great conversation trying to trace that boundary. Um, one thing I want to say is that we had a catastrophic audio mess up on my end. And so we had to redo it. Um, we uh, had salvaged as much transcript as we can. So most of it is pretty exact. But there are places where I had to fill in based on contextual clues in the conversation and what I thought I had asked. So if anything sounds a bit off, um, that that may be part of it. I've really done my best to have full fidelity to, to the original conversation and I think I mostly have, but it is possible I have um, screwed something up somewhere along the way. Um, this was a... Quite unusual kind of technical failure. And if you had heard what it sounded like, you'll be glad I did not release that version of it. But I'm very grateful to, to Jason for being here, to Stephanie for being here. I think there's a lot of value in, in this conversation. It's a very weedsy one. Um, so it was a lot of fun for me. As always, my email is Kleinshow at box.com, Kleinshow at vox.com. Here's Stephanie Kelton and Jason Furman. Jason Furman, Stephanie Kelton, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having us.
2: Jason, give me the traditional economics view on deficits. Why do we care about government deficits? The traditional concern
1: is partly macroeconomic, a view that deficits are a form of negative savings by the government, that that crowds out business investment or requires us to borrow more from foreigners. And that in either case, it reduces um, national income in the future. And then the second concern about deficits historically has been one of intergenerational fairness, that they're essentially passing
2: a cost on um, to future generations. And Stephanie, how, how does modern monetary theory, how does that approach change things here?
0: Oh, yeah, it definitely changes it. I mean, Jason described deficits as a negative saving by the government, but what we tend to focus on is the other side of the ledger, right? So that um, government deficits are positive savings for the non-government part of the economy. So, We would dispute the idea that uh, government borrowing uses up limited savings that are available to finance other projects, leading to rising interest rates and the sort of crowding out that he referred to. Uh, And also, you know, I wouldn't um, agree either with the intergenerational sort of argument because um government deficits result in new assets for someone and so in this case it would be us treasuries and so those are inherited as the government runs budget deficits, somebody ends up with new financial assets, in this case, government bonds and future generations. What happens is not an intergenerational transfer, but an intra-generational transfer, meaning that at some future date, someone's going to be receiving the interest payments on those treasury bonds. And so at any point in time, the population is made up of taxpayers and bondholders. And so it becomes a, a distributional issue, but you can't burden an entire future generation.
2: I want to stop here because crowd out is an important idea, and I want to make sure we're defining it correctly. So the idea is there is a certain amount of investment that we can have in the economy or a certain amount of, of borrowing. And if you have the government borrowing too much money, then that creates more scarcity in what the private sector can borrow, and it raises up the prices of the private sector's ability to borrow and thus makes it more expensive for them to invest. Is is that a reasonable status quo definition? Yes. So there's another idea here that I think would be be good to get at, which is how the the government budget and the the private budgets interact with each other. So let's say the government cuts taxes by $100, but only cuts spending by $90. So there's $100 going into the economy, but they only paid um for 90% of it. What what happens with that other $10? Like what what where does that money go and where did it come from?
0: Well, somebody gets to keep the extra 10. So I think it might be a little more straightforward, Ezra, if we did it slightly differently for your listeners. And so let's do, yeah, let's let's just do instead, let's suppose the government spends 100 into the economy, but it only taxes 90 back out, okay? So on the government's books, we record budget deficit, and we say the government has engaged in deficit spending. It's minus 10 on the government's books. But if they put 100 in and they only take 90 back out, that of course leaves 10 somewhere in the economy for someone to hold. And so what that means is that the government's deficit is the non-government's surplus to the penny, always.
2: So I think the intuitive question then, Jason, is that somewhere $10 just got invented or created, um, which could have an effect on inflation or something, right? People intuitively think you can't just create money out of thin air or eventually you're going to have a problem. So, so what happens to this $10? How should we think about it, magnified however many times we actually do it, across the economy?
1: Yeah. Let's, let's say you're talking about um, establishing a new social security program and you're going to pay out cash to senior citizens. You're going to tax working people. The current generation of senior citizens, when you first set that program up, benefit because they get money out of it, and they didn't pay anything into it. And then that cost of their benefit is effectively amortized and spread out over future generations. And that's an example of how you could benefit a generation today while hurting future generations. That might be a good idea because you might think that generation needs it. You might be able to target it very well. Um, But you really can do intergenerational transfers. Now, if you built a road today, you might make our grandchildren, you know, even richer than they otherwise would have been. So I don't think a deficit by itself, you can look at it and say, you know, whether it's a burden on our grandchildren or a boon for our grandchildren, but it certainly can affect our grandchildren for better or for
2: worse. So Stephanie, help me understand some of how MMT might look at this. What happened is it the danger here that the bill comes due and America can't pay it or the danger here is inflation down the road? Like what are what should we be worried about versus what we often are worried about?
0: Well, there, that is one divergent point, to be sure. I mean, the idea that there's um, bankruptcy risk or solvency risk, this is not an, an MMT point, right? That um, this is something that Warren Buffett and Alan Greenspan and the St. Louis Fed and numerous other people will tell you uh, the risk of default For a country like the U.S., which is simply promising to make payments as they come due in a currency that it and it alone can create, the U.S. dollar. So there is zero, as as Alan Greenspan put it, and these were his exact words, there is zero probability of default in that sense, right? You are never going to become Greece. You're never going to be in a situation where you can't service the debt as the payments uh, come due. So that's a pretty big difference. Yeah. I
1: don't think – I mean, Stephanie, I don't think any economics textbook, standard economics textbook, places very little weight on the default problem. And I completely agree with you and completely agree with Alan Greenspan that, you know, the United States defaulting on its debt is an absurd notion. And, in fact, you can look through history and look at countries that borrow in their own currency, that control their own monetary policy – um, and they don't default, and they don't default even when they have much more debt um, than we have. So I think that's something that sort of here out in the popular discourse that almost no economists would place very much weight on.
2: But that's a problem, right? What the actual problem with deficits is does not get described well in the public sphere. I'm, I'm realizing this even just having done the research prep for this conversation. There's a lot of hand-waving about why one might worry about deficits or so just a word that means something bad. People don't really go downstream of what they're worried about all that often. So, Stephanie, what are the conditions under which deficits matter? And is, is an understanding of when a deficit would create Create inflation or when it would create a problem? Is the boundaries of that condition really where MMT differs from traditional economics or or is it somewhere else?
0: Yeah. So we always make the point of saying that the risk of a deficit or of a debt that is too big is inflation. And so just to be clear, the national debt, what we refer to as the national debt, is nothing more than a historical record of all of the money that the government spent into the economy did not tax back that is currently being held saved in the form of U.S. treasuries. That's what the national debt is. And so those are interest-bearing safe assets, right? And so because they're interest-bearing, that involves an interest payment, and that interest becomes income to someone. And so what I would say is that the risk would be that at some future point, combined with all of the other spending that's being done in the economy, the interest spending adds Too much pressure, right? And it becomes too much income chasing too few goods. In other words, uh, you get an inflation problem in part because some of that additional spending comes from the payment of interest. So inflation is the potential threat.
1: Yeah. I mean, to some degree, this also is depending on how you're conducting your monetary policy. Right now, the Federal Reserve has a target of 2% inflation plus maximum employment, If we were to see a really large increase in government spending and it wasn't accompanied by taxes, that would put upward pressure on the economy and you'd see the Fed raising interest rates. And in fact, they'd raise it quite a lot um, if they needed to in order to get inflation to 2% and keep the employment levels that they want to keep. If you had a different vision of the Fed, that the Fed was ignoring inflation entirely, then yes, that fiscal expansion could lead to inflation. But if you have monetary policy operating the way it has for decades now, um, the risk of fiscal policy in that case is not um, so much inflation and much more that in order to stop that inflation, you'd get those much higher interest rates with all the ramifications that would have um, for people trying to buy homes or businesses to make investments.
0: Yeah, but the way that the Fed has been conducting monetary policy for the last 30 years is a consistent downward trend in interest rates, right? I mean, there was a time when the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, not all that long ago, was predicting that interest payments were going to rise to 15% of GDP by 2050 and that the debt-to-GDP ratio was going to go to 300%. I mean, these were actual forecasts, right? And what what I would have said at the time is that interest payments of that size, because it's interest income, would affect the economy in s- ways that are not totally dissimilar from the mobilization of World War II, you'd end up getting to full employment long before you got close to the 300 percent debt to GDP ratio because GDP would explode. Yeah
1: now I mean first of all we as we started this show by asking me what I thought the traditional case against deficits is, um, that's a case I am based on the data today much less worried about, I'm more worried that we're not going to make the type of investments we need um, to move our economy forward. But you know, I certainly think everything else being equal in the economy, if the government were to do single-payer health care plus a jobs guarantee plus a Green New Deal and not raise taxes at all, that the Fed would raise interest rates. Um, I think that's something I'm probably about as confident as any proposition in economics. Now, there's been a downward trend in interest rates, but you know they'd go above that.
2: I want to slow this down a little because I'm dumber on these subjects than both of you. So I guess my question listening to this is, are we really now arguing not so much about theories of when deficits matter, but, but when the Fed should raise interest rates and really like, if their model of inflation is right? I'm trying to get here at the crux of the disagreement, and it sounds to me a little bit like What's really separating the two of you is that Stephanie's view which is obviously MMT influenced is that the Federal Reserve is too sensitive in raising interest rates they're they're too afraid of inflation and so they will act to slow down the economy far before the economy actually needs to be slowed down whereas Jason maybe you're more open to open to the Fed's core model but is that what we're really arguing about is that is that the boundary I think the most important thing is the economics
1: of deficits are very different in an economy that's operating below its capacity and an economy that's operating at its capacity. If an economy is operating below its capacity, it's in a recession, it's coming out of a recession, it has high unemployment, then you get the Keynesian effect of you run a deficit and a factory that wasn't operating before and a bunch of people that were unemployed before get paired up and you have this magic where the factories are running more, the people are working more, they're earning more. They're spending more, and it all fits together. And that can happen without a lot of pressure on inflation, without much higher interest rates. Um, there's then another situation, which is whether when your economy is at capacity. And there, if you try to spend more, um, it's going to start to put upward pressure on inflation. You'll get either the Fed responding or you'll get inflation rising. And so I think a really important question is, how much of the time do we expect going forward the economy to be in this position of being below capacity, which was in for most of the last decade, um, so it can be in for a very long period of time, or do you think it'll be at capacity? My own argument is, you know, if you're making plans, I would assume starting five years from now, um, if you're going to do all your economic policies right, you're probably going to have your economy at capacity and should base your plans accordingly.
0: Well, I I don't want to try to uh, predict where the economy is going to be five years from now. I have absolutely no idea where the current account balance is gonna be, what the private sector's appetite for um, financial balances to be lower rather than higher than they are today. Um, you know, I, I look back at uh, where we were, let's say in 2007, and um Jason, you you wrote a, a piece back then, and you were talking about options to close the long-run fiscal gap. And during that time, in that piece, you you noted, and I think this is so interesting, because you you noted both that the current account deficit was approaching seven percent of GDP and that the private saving rate was at its lowest level since 1939. So the U.S. trade deficit at about 7% of GDP and private saving rate at its lowest rate since 1939. And so it's 2007, right? It's right before the wheels come off the U.S. economy. And- that was a time when Jason, you were worried that deficits need, we needed deficit reduction. You wrote that one of the most important issues facing our nation at that time was the long run budget deficit. And what I think is interesting is because I come at this from, you know, a framework where the sector balances are important in the way that I think about whether deficits are too big or too small. At that time, I was looking at where the deficit was, and I was lamenting the fact that the deficit was way, way, way too small because the private savings balance had gone deeply into the red, right? Private uh, sector balances were negative for the first time in generations. And so I viewed that as a real problem.
1: Right. And I am have read my 2007, um, whatever it was, more recently than I have, um, you know, it's January 2008, um, I was out there very actively calling for fiscal stimulus um, about nine or 10 months before a recession was called. the time, other very conventional economists like Marty Feldstein and Larry Summers, um, two of my colleagues here at Harvard, were also calling for fiscal stimulus. And it's based on the idea that as an economy slipping into recession, the problem is that the deficit is too small. Um, not that the deficit is too large. The International Monetary Fund, when they evaluated the U.S. economy every year that I was in the White House, they complained that the United States was cutting its deficit too quickly. The IMF was asking the United States to not do the amount of deficit reduction it was doing. So I think there's an awful lot in pretty conventional economics that says if your economy is operating below capacity, you want a fiscal expansion. Um, to get back to the predicting though. I certainly can't predict five years into the future, but if we were to do, again, I, I think we should have in our heads, you know, we want to do single payer, a jobs guarantee, and a green new deal. Let's say that costs collectively um, 10% of GDP, so it'd be about 50% more than the federal government is spending now. And you're asking Congress to pass a law that would have all three of those in place permanently. Are you going to ask Congress to do something else at the same time um, in terms of revenue? To answer that question, you need a prediction five years from now. To say it doesn't need to do anything on revenue, that itself is making a prediction about five years from now. I think to predict we're going to still be in a deep recession five years in the future when you're spending that much is probably not the best basis for making a policy like that.
0: Yeah, so I, I completely agree. And I, would, I was not suggesting that uh, I was reluctant to say whether we needed offsets if we were planning to move forward with a host of new government programs costing into the trillions of dollars. That's a very different question from saying, given where we are today— Is the deficit too big, too small? Should we begin reducing deficits over the course of the next five years? What's the right size deficit three or five years from today, given the existing sort of programs that are in place? That's a very different question. I would never take the position that we ought to move forward uh, passing legislation with no offsets to do green new deals and job guarantees and Medicare for all. That is not my view at all.
1: Yeah. No, 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 I wasn't saying it was. I was just saying the reason that one thinks those needs to be paid for in some manner, maybe 80% of them need to be paid for, maybe 120%, one could argue about that, is because peering into the future that we don't think the fiscal stimulus model of they're helping those idle factories and those idle workers get paired up together is the right way to think about the world a couple of years in the future, at least
2: if you're doing something that large. So to take this a bit out of the space of of future economic forecasting, Stephanie, I know something that, that you've been frustrated with sometimes is the view that MMT says nothing ever needs to be paid back and we can just print money endlessly. And one thing going on here, when I think about when MMT has come so much into the public debate, is that it, it happened in a period when the economy was well below capacity. It happened in this period when we had this huge recession and a financial crisis and a huge output gap. And so you also had a lot of people well, quite wrongly, you know, worrying about bond vigilantes and America becoming Greece. But so MMT comes in in this moment when its um, recommendations are to worry a lot less about deficits and you know worry a lot less about inflation and just spend the money to get output moving again. But, you know, if you imagine four or 10 years from now and things are very different, then maybe you need to be raising taxes to slow down the economy under the MMT prescription. So do you want to talk a little bit about that perception that with MMT, you don't actually have to pay for any of your spending and when it might be wrong?
0: Yeah, sure. So I think you're probably right that interest, uh, there was an uptick in interest around the work that we had done in the aftermath of the financial crisis, when there was a great deal of slack in the economy. And I think that Jason and I, we would have been on exactly the same page when it came probably uh, to the degree to which the government had fiscal space and could embark on new spending, provide additional stimulus without, you know, offsets. I mean, that would have undermined the purpose of the stimulus, in fact. But as we get closer and closer to full employment, The amount of fiscal space you have begins to close in around you, okay? You have less and less, and then the inflation risk begins to increase. And so what we're really trying to do is not to say governments can spend without limit because they control their own currency, and therefore you never need to worry about deficits or debt, but that inflation is the correct Uh, risk factor, and that when governments consider new spending programs, in particular, large spending programs, as the economy gets closer to full employment, you have to take much more seriously the need for offsets, whether those come in the form of new revenue or whether they come in the form of reductions in spending in some other area of the budget. So
2: the thing that comes up here a lot is this view that governments, uh, and particularly representative government- Um, it's democratically accountable. And what people are going to want is for them to spend a lot. They're not going to take the risk of inflation seriously. And precisely because of that, having the representative part of government be responsible for slowing down the economy by raising taxes or cutting spending is is a bad idea just from the perspective of political economy, that the government will always be spending beyond the point um, when it should, and that inflation can get out of hand quickly. And then that genie of inflation can, can get very hard to put back in the bottle.
0: Yeah. So if right now, the way we do it is we pretend that there's a revenue constraint. And so we don't pass legislation because of the fear of, let's say, adding to budget deficits. And so we get uh, infrastructure crumbling around us. We get, you know, problems that aren't solved that we could be solving. And so we get a more lackluster. We don't invest in R&D. We don't uh, put money in education that we should be putting in education to promote longer run growth. So we get a less dynamic, slower growing economy because of those fears. And I guess the question is, if we replace the revenue constraint with an inflation constraint, does that cause members of Congress to now vote more liberally. And by that, I mean, you know, with less fear about expanding budget deficits because we've removed the perception that uh, there's a revenue constraint that's binding. I don't I don't get that impression. My impression, quite frankly, is that Congress already behaves as if they understand MMT. I mean, you know, there were plenty of people warning And when it comes to defense spending. Everybody in Congress is an MMT or virtually all of them. Uh, When we came to the tax cuts, I mean, you know, most economists in 2017 were warning uh, against the passage, at least, you know, uh, those of us, you know, many on the left were warning that the U.S. couldn't afford deficit increasing tax cuts that deficits matter again that this was going to lead if we pass these now we know close to 2 trillion dollars in tax cuts that this was going to have all of the usual negative effects because we're no longer in a liquidity trap and we're close to full employment and if we push forward with an increase in deficit spending of this magnitude this close to full employment then we run the risks of all of the negative things happening and of course congress did it anyway so uh and and I might add, we're waiting to find the negative effects of all of that additional deficit spending. They just didn't happen. But I I guess I just don't believe that Congress restrains itself because uh, it, it fears anything and that inflation and inflation constraint would change that.
2: Jason, you've been in those meetings um, with members of Congress as um, a, a policymaker at the White House, and I'm curious if the way Stephanie describes how Congress sees those constraints, what those constraints are treated like in the political system, accords to your experience.
1: Yeah, I think they have
2: um, unduly constrained it. You know, if you look at most
1: political economy models from a decade ago, they'd be exactly as you described them, Ezra, that you were afraid that politicians you know, want inflation So you hand it over to the central bank that can be independent and, you know, be a little bit more of a sourpuss than, you know, Congress would have been willing to be. Um, But then you look at the last decade and you saw Congress, Republicans in Congress, constantly telling the Fed to be even more contractionary, you know, the opposite of what those models said. And the Fed used its independence to be more expansionary um, than Congress wanted it to be um and then you look at the fiscal side and you have the IMF lecturing the United States not to cut its deficits very much and congress you know to some degree in both parties actively engaged in reducing deficits at a time when the unemployment rate was still 8 or 9%. So I think we have you know too much of a contractionary bias built into our political system. I think a lot of that is grounded in sort of inaccurate views and understanding, um, you know, of, of economics and trying to get people to understand, yeah, you know, deficits have costs and benefits, but the costs aren't nearly as large as you think. And you need to balance those against the benefits. If you're giving large corporate tax cuts that are poorly designed, the benefits are probably not going to outweigh the costs. If you're doing, you know, a great infrastructure program, um, you know, the costs, the benefits may well outweigh the costs and so I think it's a you know complicated thing but no one no one wants that complexity
2: so I'm getting a huge amount out of this conversation but I'm going to be honest I'm not sure I fully understand still where your theories diverge at least in what they would recommend so so let me try something unusual here. Let me ask you to describe a theory that you feel your framework would recommend that the other person in their framework would would disagree with. So, you know, to describe a hypothetical thing that could happen where Stephanie MMT would have you go one way and, and maybe Jason's view of the world would have him go the other or Jason vice versa for you. Could we try that? And, and, and Stephanie, beginning with you?
0: Well, I mean, I guess I would say that You know, I think that Jason is more concerned with the ratio of public debt to GDP, and that he thinks of it as a proper target of policy. And so, what what I've read of him uh, recently, as early as you know, as recently as just last year, is an argument that government ought to begin to turn, or even in January of this year, uh, turn its attention to beginning to reduce budget deficits modestly and and slowly over time, but with the aim of targeting a a debt-to-GDP ratio where there's a belief that it's on an unsustainable trajectory now. And so we've got to do something to bend that ratio down. Um, and so I, I guess I would say the negative consequences from my position uh, of of making the debt to GDP ratio a target of policy is that you will necessarily end up with slower growing economy, more austerity built in than the economy may need through that period of time because the ratio is, is not a proper target of policy macroeconomic policy.
2: OK, so before going to Jason's response on that, I just want to make sure I understand it. So, so the idea is that debt to GDP is basically just an irrelevancy. We, we shouldn't be following it at all because it doesn't measure anything we care that much about measuring. Um, we care about inflation, so we should measure inflation directly, or maybe we care about interest rates and, and, and do that directly. But to measure debt to GDP is just a conceptual mistake. It orients us towards being worried about the wrong thing, which can in, in, in turn make us do the wrong thing. So we should just be worried not about downstream um, effects, but just the, the the indicators that are directly measuring the qualities of the economy we're concerned with.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that if there was a long-term debt problem, then the way that you would know that is that there would be a long-term inflation problem. You would have some credible long-term inflation forecast coming from the Fed or from TIPS or wherever you would see this thing. Uh, there would be evidence that there there is a perception that long-term inflation is there is a heightened risk of inflation and you just don't see it anywhere. And absent that, for me, there is no evidence of a long-term debt problem.
2: Jason, do you feel like that actually conflicts
1: with your position? Um first, of all, I don't I still don't understand the inflation point because if you think that inflation is the problem that would be associated with deficits becoming too large. Then I don't know why you wouldn't think, in that circumstance, the Fed wouldn't raise interest rates, and then you're back to um, deficits driving up interest rates. Maybe not now, but you know, if you think that worries inflation. Do you think the Fed is just doing nothing in the face of that inflation, or do you think the Fed is raising interest rates when that inflation comes?
0: Well, no, I'm saying I don't see the inflation risk. And because I don't see the inflation risk, short, medium, or long term, I don't have the calculus that the Fed then— No, I get that.
1: But you were saying if, in theory, you did a 10% of GDP expansion in spending, you said the thing you'd look to is inflation. If the Fed is doing its job, we would never, ever see the inflation. No matter how much we did in unpaid-for spending or unpaid-for tax cuts, we would just see the inflation rate staying relatively low, but we'd see interest rates going up. Now, we're not seeing that either right now, which is why I'm not particularly worried right now, but I don't think you can reduce this just as an economic matter um, to just looking at the inflation rate when the whole point of the Fed is to make sure that that doesn't go up and to raise interest rates if it needs to, to prevent that from happening.
0: Okay. But the whole point of MMT is to avoid an acceleration in inflation in the first place. And so I didn't say, uh, let's increase spending by 10% and not offset it and then wait for the Fed to react to the inflation we create. I'm saying MMT's position is the best defense against inflation is a good offense. In other words, you you tackle inflation in the budgeting process itself where the goal is, right, to avoid creating the inflationary pressures by putting in the proper offsets when you pass the legislation.
1: But I'm just saying if what you're if you're trying to figure out where we are in our fiscal position and all you're doing is looking at the CPI every month or you're looking at forecasts of inflation and financial markets have forecasts of it, forecasters make forecasts of it. If that's all you're ever looking at, you might not ever see that inflation, even if you weren't doing um, what you're supposed to on the fiscal side, just because the Fed, if it was doing its job, would make sure that no matter what you were doing in fiscal policy, it didn't show up as inflation. So I'm not sure that you can just look at that one variable to decide but but I can I can, I'm happy to step back to policy and where I think we should
2: go. Let me see if I can just track with the conversation. You guys can tell me where I'm wrong as I describe this. What Stephanie says is that the the idea MMT would push is, you know, stop tracking debt to GDP because debt isn't the indicator of what we're really worried about. What we're worried about is inflation. Jason, you're saying you can't just track inflation because we have the Federal Reserve keeping inflation under check. So even if debt to GDP gets way out of hand, you're never going to see that inflation because the interest rates are going to go up as the Fed slows down the economy to prevent that inflation from happening. So I guess the question this raises is whether the MMT view, Stephanie, is that actually we just have too much of the Fed in this thing altogether, that what you want is to just allow a little bit more space between what we do on the budget and what might happen in the economy so we can see things more directly and 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 respond to them in, in turn.
0: In part, yeah. I mean, look, there there is so much out there in terms of the research about the Fed's reaction function, the importance or not of um interest rate movements affecting things like you know capital spending Um, whether deficits, in fact, lead to higher interest rates. Some of the more recent research that I've seen that's very good on this looks at the um, whether it's from Boreo or uh, Sharp or whomever um, looks at this and says, look, if you actually um, separate countries that control their own currencies from those that don't, then what you find is that rising deficits and increasing debt to GDP ratios over time do tend to to be correlated with higher interest rates and slower growth, but in non, uh, that's in non-monetary sovereigns, but in sovereign countries, countries with their own sovereign currencies, that is empirically not borne out. So, yes, I think there are all kinds of things when it comes to the Fed, uh, as you said, maybe overreacting, overcorrecting, anticipating inflation problems and, and engaging in a tightening cycle that slows things down that wouldn't have been borne out if the Fed had been more patient. So. I think we we just tend to have uh, much less confidence in the central bank's ability to fine tune the economy with, um, you know, 25 basis point adjustments in the overnight rate here and there over time.
1: I mean, I don't certainly don't think the Fed is perfect, but I'm quite happy that we have given them the inflation objective. I think they've done, you know, a decent job of it. And certainly, in my experience with fiscal policy done by Congress, it is incredibly far from what anyone would want. You know, sometimes it's too much. Sometimes it's too little. It's really poorly timed. We were doing a fiscal contraction in the wake of the Great Recession, et cetera. So I personally am quite happy that there's an institution that's insulated from Congress that's focused on employment, focused on inflation, We could litigate the ratio of those two. Were they a little too slow, a little too large, a little too fast, you know, in any given dimension? But I've never seen anything as massive as the errors that you routinely see Congress making um, when they do fiscal policy.
2: So I guess this gets back to a question I'd, I'd asked earlier, which is, are we really arguing here about the role of the Fed? Are we really saying that the Fed is is too aggressive in the economy or too present in the economy? And what we really need is a little bit more space so the government can make decisions and we can make these investments and then actually see what is happening with inflation be, before we act on it. That the 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 problem is with the Fed stepping into the middle and very aggressively raising interest rates to keep inflation from happening, we're not being able to to see the results of our own actions and then make these calculations in a real time way.
1: You know, I Confess, I sometimes have a hard time understanding because if you think that um, you do too much of a fiscal expansion in an economy that's at capacity, that that causes a problem that shows up somewhere, you know, could be higher inflation, could be higher interest rates, could be something else. Um, that's exactly what um, the mainstream predicts. If your view is that a lot of the time the economy is operating below capacity. And in that circumstance, the problem is the deficit's too small, not that the deficit's too large. That's what conventional economics says. So I am sometimes not sure. I mean, what I worry about is when I see a lot of non-economists refer to MMT as now we can have single payer and we don't need to pay for it. That's a thing I see all the time. So I think there it's a very different prediction. Because I think both Steffi and I agree, if you did single payer and didn't have any offsets, that would create some problem somewhere in the economy. I think a lot of supporters of single payer invoke MMT um, to the contrary.
2: So, if the view of MMT, Stephanie, isn't just that deficits don't matter, what what does it help you see? How would it change the budgeting process? How does it change the way you analyze the issues? Sort of what is what is the more complex version of how MMT changes the way you see some of these uh, like tangible issues in the world?
0: Well, okay. So one thing I would say is, you know, we would like to see the federal budgeting process approached differently. We would like to see um, decisions taken with an eye to the inflation risk, as opposed to thinking that there's a problem inherent. Inherent in adding to deficits per se. Um, so that's a big thing. Look, we have made some pretty major calls over the course of the last couple of decades that many, many other economists miss. We, When the Clinton surpluses, when those budgets were in surplus, it was the MMT crowd. Um, almost exclusively that was warning that the Clinton surpluses were dangerous and unsustainable precisely because they came at the expense of private sector indebtedness. We were among a small group saying, for example, that the euro, there was a problem with the way the Maastricht Treaty was drafted and the way the euro was going to be introduced that was going to lead to debt crises. We specifically laid out the risks associated with that. The idea that rising deficits push interest rates up this was one of my earliest publications showing that we've got we've got this exactly backwards that deficits tend to push interest rates down not up on qe we were among a small group that argued that qe was not going to be inflationary because it's an asset swap when it came to the stimulus when it came to japan and the risks of default the fiscal space for the trump tax cuts i mean again and again for the various reasons, but mostly because of the analytical framework that we use that incorporates not just Abel Lerner, but Wynne Godley and the work of Hyman Minsky and others, that I think we keep getting the big stuff right.
1: That's great that every one of those was right. Most of those didn't require a new theory, just to take a few of them. The Maastricht targets for the single European currency in terms of debt and deficits Paul Krugman was very against that using very conventional economics, as were, I'd say, probably the majority of the macroeconomists, or at least the ones, you know, I hang out with. Um, Almost none of the economists that I spend any time with were worried about QE causing inflation. And, you know, on something like the Trump tax cuts, I think this is sort of a good example. There were people who said the sky would fall that was a ridiculous view to have. I published a paper saying I predicted that the Trump tax cuts would result in interest rates being 14 basis points higher. So that's instead of being 2.8, they'd be 2.94. I said that has, you know, not a big cost, but a bit of a cost, and that that cost wasn't worth it for a really poorly designed tax cut. I don't think there's anything in the data that refutes um, my belief that it raised interest rates by 14 basis points. Um, I'm not saying it proves it either, um, but you can't say, oh, you know, there wasn't skyrocketing interest rates, therefore a prediction of a modest increase in interest rates was wrong. And I think that's where a lot of this is on the deficit. It's not, you know, the people who make the sky is falling predictions on any of this stuff are not economists and they're not grounded in economics. The people doing things grounded in economics think, you know, deficits have a small cost associated with them. And then you look at what the money is spent on and figure out, you
2: know, is it a benefit or or is it a cost? Let let me push you uh, a bit on that. Actually, I'm sorry, Stephanie,
0: do you you want to respond? Well, I was just going to say on the on the euro, it was never the three percent deficit Uh, limit or the 60% debt to GDP limit. That was never the reason that we objected to the Maastricht Treaty. treaty. It was always that the problems would arise specifically because when countries gave up their sovereign currencies and adopted the euro, they were introducing uh, default risk, which financial markets were going to eventually figure out and price in. And So it it didn't have anything to do with saying you got to keep your deficits at 3%. And we said, oh, that's too low. It should be five or it should be six. And and on the uh Trump stuff on the tax cuts, um, my argument wasn't about interest rates. It was, you know, it was more like things like this, like the letter that uh, you know, you, Jason, and a few of the other past CEA chairs wrote in 2018, warning about the risks of you know, increasing deficits. And in that letter, you say that it's a ch- it will be a challenge for the ability of the government to provide its citizen to provide for its citizens and to respond to recessions and emergencies. That's the kind of thing that I think, given where the deficit is today, there are people who believe that this has curtail the ability of a future Congress to respond forcefully if there's a downturn or another type of emergency. And my position is that it it has done no such thing.
1: Oh, my, yeah. And I mean, what I think about that, and I've written this in a, about 100 places, is I think there is zero reason to think we do not have fiscal space to respond to the next recession. Even if our debt gets higher and there's a recession, absolutely we can do a fiscal expansion. In fact, the higher your debt is, the more you can't afford not to do a fiscal expansion in the face of a recession, because the bigger your debt is, the more your growth rate matters for your debt um, dynamics. My worry is a political one, though, that Congress may not see it that way in the future. So I think we have economic space to respond to a future recession, I do worry about how, whether we have political space. I think more broadly, though, I do want to step back. Fiscal policy isn't primarily about targeting a debt, targeting a deficit, targeting an inflation rate, targeting an interest rate. Fiscal policy should be about the type of society we want to have. Are we providing health care? Are we building infrastructure? Are we supporting education? You know, what are we doing about the distribution of income? And so where I'd start in fiscal policy is what do you want to do? And then at some point, you're going to have to pay for that in some manner, maybe not right away, maybe not every dollar. And then the question is, what direction do we want to go? I think we want to go the direction a little bit more of where a lot of European countries are. They have higher spending than us on a lot of those things, and they have higher taxes, Um, than us. And they have, as a result of that, a more progressive fiscal system. So I think getting out of all of this macro stuff and into what your priorities are and then figuring out how you're going to pay for those priorities is the right way to think about fiscal policy and then let the Fed do most of the work on the, the macro side.
2: So to rewind the conversation a bit, Jason, something you said a few minutes ago, which is that a lot of economists could have gotten these calls right. And something I'd like to talk a little bit about is how in the past couple of years, you and Larry Summers and a number of other economists have been challenging what I do think of as the mainstream economic view of deficits, which is a much more rigid and concerned view. I mean, I think of the the Obama years where you had a lot of very mainstream economists writing op-eds about becoming Greece and bond vigilantes and, and you know, all of this budget hawkery and and, and deficit panic. And so it does seem to me there have been a lot of economists, again, very much in the mainstream during the financial crisis. Some of them were right-leaning, but many of them were in the center too. And even the Obama administration had economists who were much more concerned about this, who were very alarmed about deficits at a time when interest rates were low, when inflation was low, when there wasn't really a lot of reason to be Alarmed, so you and others are, are making an argument to see these things differently going forward, and making an argument that the situation has changed such that the models need to change. Can you talk a bit about how your view on this is changing and how the profession's view on this has changed? Yeah,
1: yeah, I'd be mostly, I'd be much more focused on interest rates, and just an amazing, dramatic thing has happened. In the early nineteen nineties, the real interest rate—that's the interest rate adjusted for inflation—was. Now the real interest rate is 0.8%. So when interest rates are much lower, that means you can afford to have a higher debt level. It means that, you know, businesses do not face a problem in our economy about the cost of borrowing money to invest. And so we don't really need to worry very much about that. Um, It means actually, in some ways, we're worried that interest rates are so low, because the next time there's a recession, It'll make it harder for the Fed to cut rates by as much as we might like them to. And so just that one variable, the interest rate, um, I think should have a, a big effect on how you think about fiscal policy. And you know, with the interest rate having fallen since the 1980s, with everyone's forecast of the interest rate having been wrong um, since the 1980s, it keeps being below what anyone thinks. Um, I think that says it's time to update not our models. We don't need a brand new model, but the parameters that we put into our model. And if you take the same old model, but you put in two new parameters, one is a lower interest rate, the second is the economy is operating below its capacity, um, or often is, um, you get, you know, some pretty different answers. Um, and I agree with you, Ezra, that you know I, th- I think very few economists on the center or the left thought we should be doing an immediate fiscal contraction in the face of the recession. But um, I think a lot of them were too worried about you know, a fiscal contraction 5, 10, 15 years into the future even. And when you take the same old model, put in the new parameters, I think that gives you different answers.
2: So something you said to me before, and that I think you're gesturing at here, is that there's one way of looking at the model, which is the model was always wrong. There was always this huge flaw in the model and how it thought about deficits. And another way of looking at the model is that the model was right for a time. And now as our time has changed, as the underlying fundamentals of the economy have changed, the model needs to change too. And and you've made the point that you think it's the latter. You think the model wasn't always wrong, but things have changed. And so now we need to, to, to update our models. So can you talk a little bit about the ways in which you think the economy has changed such that we need to be looking at it fundamentally differently? Yeah,
1: I think there are very few in fiscal policy timeless truths that you could just go into a cave and infer the right fiscal policy. I think you have to be looking at the data um, and looking at the world. And in particular, right now, the world is awash in savings. Partly that's because you have a lot of inequality and high-income people um, spend a lot, but they don't spend uh, nearly as much as they make so they save more. You have countries like China that um, are saving huge amounts. Um, in part, businesses don't want to invest as much as they used to because you can build a huge business entirely um, you know, in the cloud with intangible capital and the like, um, not the big heavy factories of before. And you know some other factors as well. And I think those types of changes, which have built gradually over time, have meant that um, you know, we don't have much of a problem with savings right now. And so if the government's doing some negative savings in the form of a budget deficit, that's going to be less of a problem than you know if the government had done that 20 or 30 years ago.
2: That gets at something, Stephanie, that I wanted to get at on the MMT side, too. Um, To your point about debt-to-GDP being the wrong indicator, one can imagine 15 or 20 years from now where the debt-to-GDP ratio is 40%, which a lot of budget hawks would be thrilled by, but the... MMT theory or the MMT way of looking at where the economy is there. The economy is running too hot. And even though the debt to GDP ratio is pretty low, we need to be raising uh, taxes or cutting spending to slow the economy down. And so, in fact, MMT is recommending a more contractionary fiscal policy than this kind of traditional budget hawk economics is. Um, that That is theoretically possible, right?
0: Well, a- MMT would say that the purpose is always, you know, to try to balance the risks of any additional spending, the benefits of any additional spending against the risks of inflation. And so sure, there's nothing in MMT that says that the right budget outcome is always a budget deficit. Balanced budgets might be the Right budget outcome because you might need to allow the budget to move into balance to get the right macroeconomic conditions to maintain full employment and low inflation. There's nothing wrong with a budget surplus, provided that that budget outcome is the one that's consistent with a full employment economy and low inflation. But I I would say, you know, I think that the structural break, the thing that changed that should have forced the change in the analytical models and the tools that we use. The structural break occurred in 1971, and I believe pretty strongly that the narratives, the stories, the models, the analytic frameworks that are in place today and widely adopted by mainstream economists are those that were compatible with a pre-1971 world. In other words, they're built for fixed exchange rate regimes, and we don't have a fixed exchange rate regime. And I think that it's because MMT begins with that recognition that we we are no longer, the dollar is no longer tethered to gold. We don't have a fixed exchange rate. We have a floating currency. That changes the way the interest rate works. Instead of the interest rate being an endogenous variable, it becomes an exogenous policy variable, and it becomes important when we talk about debt sustainability and dynamics and that sort of a thing. Um, and and a whole range of other things sort of fall out of that recognition that the currency, the monetary regime underwent this fundamental change and we just didn't really update the narratives and the models um, as we should have.
1: I think that definitely, I think that frankly borders slightly on slander of a large portion of the economics profession. Um, there have been models going back to Mundell and Fleming that you can assume fixed exchange rates, you can assume flexible exchange rates, and in those two cases, you get different relationships between monetary policy, deficits, and interest rates. You know those have been updated by people like Maury Obstfeld and Paul Krugman. Um, so I think that's just a a real complete mischaracterization. Um. Of of economics. I mean, I just I I don't want to go on about this, but
2: all right, I'm a bit less interested in the in the economic models debate because I don't think we'll be able to solve that one here. But let me ask a more tangible question, to help bring this to a close. If Democrats win in 2020 and the 2020 economy looks very much the way it does now. And so you have, I don't know, President Bernie Sanders wants to do single payer health care and it's going to cost 20 trillion dollars. Recognizing cost is tricky here. And a lot of this will be off budget, off government budget spending coming onto the government budget. Does all 20 trillion needs to be paid for, or um, does the government only need to offset half of it or none of it, um, or does it need to be more than paid for? I'm curious what both of you would recommend if President Sanders were coming in, and, and Stephanie, I know you've worked with him before, if he were coming to you and saying, do I offset this plan or not? Is responsible economic thing to do to pay for my single-payer plan or to leave all or some of it unpaid for?
0: Oh, I'd tell him, give me a team of economists in about six months and I'll let you know. Um Really, I mean, I'm not, I'm not being sort of flippant in that. I think that that is an extremely important question that would require some very serious, time consuming, uh, patient analytical work to try to arrive at the right answer. Ezra, this is, this is, we're talking about transforming in the case of moving, transitioning to Medicare for all single payer healthcare, transforming about a 17th of the U.S. economy. And estimating the the ways in which the government taking over payments for healthcare and a whole bunch of spending that currently takes place and would take place for the next ten and twenty years under the current system, that spending goes away. So the questions for me would be, how much of the additional government spending needs to be offset? You can't answer. You can't possibly know the answer unless you have some pretty good understanding or forecast of how much of the current spending that would have taken place is going to go away because that then is creating, in a sense, an offset for the new government spending. So I think it's a super important and very complicated question. I don't know the answer to it, but I would back into the question. Does it need to be offset 50 percent, 80 percent, 100 percent? I seriously doubt the answer is 100 percent. Um, because the estimates that we've seen from some of the early studies suggest that transitioning to Medicare for all is going to save something like two trillion dollars over the next 10 years. But if you say it's going to save two trillion, that's the same as saying two trillion dollars in spending that would otherwise take place in the economy is going to go away. So um, that's the way I would approach it.
2: Jason?
1: I would say pay for it a hundred percent. I can't prove that that's optimal. I'd love to have a team of economists work on that question for six months. In my experience, no one ever gives you that team and gives you six months. And if they did at the end of it, there's so many unknowable and unpredictable things about the future. You still don't have a very precise answer. Um, But I think that common sense notion isn't going to get you too terribly off right now. Certainly looks an awful lot like what worked well in establishing Social Security, in establishing Medicare. In looking at the health systems around the world, um, operate on that type of principle. So, I, I don't think this has served us that badly in the past and served other countries that badly, um, or is that constraining. Um, you know, I would say, in terms of its saving money, if single payer did its job, um, people would be paid more. You know, businesses are spending $500 billion a year on healthcare right now. Most economists would predict that they're gonna to start to pay more of that out in wages, and then people would go spend those wages. So there's a big you know, set of extra demand coming out of this, um, even if it does save money in the health system if you do it in an unpaid for basis.
2: I'm going to have to table this here. I would love to have another discussion with all of you about single payer and this question of, you know, would the money move into workers' wages? I've, that that I think is a really important question for this healthcare debate that does not get talked about that much. But uh, we have to let it go. So I want to ask you both the question we used to end the podcast. I usually ask for three books, but if I could ask you both for one, what is a book you'd suggest to the audience with us now having had this conversation? And Stephanie, if you want to begin.
0: Oh, well, then I'm going to change my recommendation because you've tied me to the topic of the conversation. I was going to Oh, say, oh Tr- I, I absolve you I of that. Say,
2: recommend whatever you want. That okay. would be great.
0: Hey, I'm going to give you two because I was going to say Tressie McMillan caught him thick. I'm uh, halfway through and it's absolutely as terrific as everybody says. Related to the topics we've been discussing, I'll say uh, L. Randall Ray's Understanding Modern Money.
2: And Jason, um, for fairness, you also get two. My favorite
1: title of any economics book is um, Saving Capitalism from the Capitalists by Raghu Rajan and Luigi Zingales, which comes at economics with a really deep reverence for markets and a deep appreciation that no one who's actually engaged in business likes markets um, or competition very much. And that certainly mirrors my own experience and it's an excellent um, wide-ranging read. Um, The second one, um, uh, which I just reread, is The Worldly Philosophers by Robert Heilbronner that gives you a tour of economics from Adam Smith through Joseph Schumpeter and puts economics in the tradition that I think is an important part of it, of worldly philosophy that combines politics, sociology, history, psychology, and economics. I think it's good the way it's practiced today, which is in a more narrow technocratic manner, but having that broader perspective in the back of your head. Um, plus, it's a great
2: read. Jason Furman, Stephanie Kelton, thank you both very much. Thanks, Ezra. Thank you. All right. Thank you to Jason and Stephanie for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here and, and being with me through that very weedsy debate about modern monetary theory. I guess I shouldn't call it a debate. That was a, is a conversation. Um, I want to make sure this isn't just seen as like a like a who won exercise, because my view in this and, and in a lot of these kinds of things is uh, that, you know, there's there's truth on all sides of it and there's something to learn. So I don't want to just be like, who won? That would be a bummer of a way to, to see the response to this. Um, thank you to Topher Ruth at Berkeley, um, who did a lot of work to try to help us salvage the audio after it didn't work to my producer, Jeff Geld, um, who also did a lot of work on this one. This one took a little bit more energy to put out than it normally does, but that said is a pleasure to put out and the Ezra Klein show will be back in a couple of days.